Back in 2003, the highest grossing movie was Finding Nemo. And that year, Finding Nemo was competing with Pirates of the Caribbean, The Matrix Reloaded, and the third Lord of the Rings movie. And it is understandable, the Pixar animation work is genius. The characters are funny and touching at times. The storyline is thoughtful and speaks to a wide audience. But what really compels me about the story of Finding Nemo is its animal rights dimension. For the first time ever, we had a movie depicting fish and other sea life as individual sentient creatures. Of course, they were anthropomorphized to a certain degree, but still, for once, they were represented as more than food. More than that, the whole plot of the movie revolved around an act of animal abuse, the capture and captivity of Nemo in an aquarium. The habit humans have of turning marine life into indoor decoration. And this is the topic of today's episode. And to discuss this issue, I have with me Gwendolyn Church, the founder of Friends of Philip, a fish and aquatic animal sanctuary based in Reno, Nevada, in the United States. Gwendolyn, thank you so much for being here. Hi, thank you so much for having me. So most people were completely blunt about the, the animal rights message in Finding Nemo, uh, so much so that there might have been a spike in clownfish sales after the release of the movie. And I feel like it's a symptom of how fish is still viewed as nothing more than food. It is so hard for people to consider fish as being sentient. So Gwendolyn, do you share that observation? And do you have an idea of why it is so hard for people to care about fish? I, I do share that view. And I think a huge part of why it's difficult for us to connect to fish is is because we live in such different worlds. Um, you know, most of us in our lives will interact with terrestrial farmed animals in one way or another, whether it's meeting a cow or, or just driving past a field of sheep or something like that. We see them day to day and we don't have anything even close to that with fish. For most people, the way that they will interact with a fish most often is through eating them. Um, and then we may or may not encounter fish as, you know, quote unquote, pet animals kept in aquariums, either in the home or in the pet store or visiting an aquarium or something like that. And I think that kind of inherent separation that comes with just the very different environments that we live in makes it a bit more difficult for people to connect to fish. Um, and on top of that, fish aren't what many people would consider kind of classically cute the way a dog is or a cow or or many of the terrestrial animals that we also love and so it can be really hard i think for people to look at a fish and connect to that animal as an individual and recognize that they really are an individual um, and and i think what compounds that is when we do meet fish in captivity um, it's either as a very kind of passing moment in an aquarium um, you know like going to visit a, a big aquarium or something like that, or as, as a basically decoration, like you said, in someone's home. And we don't spend the time looking at that animal and interacting with them as an individual. We just say, oh, wow, what a pretty fish and kind of move on. Um, and even more so, you know, we'll encounter a fish who is maybe not being treated very well. And most of us don't recognize what that looks like. So if I meet a dog and I can see that the dog is is thin or sick or not doing well, like a lot of people I think can recognize that pretty easily. 
And it's harder for most of us to see that when we look at a fish. So people might encounter a fish in a bowl and say, wow, fish are so boring, when the takeaway should be, wow, that fish is very mistreated and they're not feeling well. So what makes a, a fish sentient? Um, can we make, if someone is listening to this and they're not convinced that uh, a fish is sentient, what would you say to that person? I think that that person should probably read up a bit more on our scientific understanding of fish and, and fish's experiences. Um, you know, there have been all kinds of studies, some horrible <laughs> experiments done to fish that, you know, let us know that we, we scientifically know that fish are sentient. We know that they feel pain. We know that they want to avoid pain. We know that they remember places and faces. We know that they remember individuals. We know that there are some species of fish who can recognize themselves in a mirror. Um, so we know all of that scientifically, but I think even more importantly, I, I would encourage that person to find a way to interact with fish on an individual level, because all you have to do is meet one fish who is happy and healthy and treated well, and it's just so apparent that they're sentient and that they're an individual. So is it the solution to resolving this wrong view about fish? Is the solution to encourage interactions with marine life? I think it is in in a certain sense, as long as we're doing it responsibly. You know, I, I don't think that the way that we should strive to connect with fish is by purchasing them as pets and bringing them into our home. I don't think that the way that we should interact with fish is by um, pulling them out of their homes to so that they can live in aquariums. I think the way that we should best interact with fish is the way that we should interact with all animals, which is meeting them on their terms. Um, and being respectful of them as individuals. And what do you think about people who, I guess, have that interaction, but still hold that view about fish? For example, fishermen. I, I cannot think of someone who has a greater, who spends greater time with fish than a fisherman. And they see that, you know, when they pull out the fish from the water, they see that the fish is struggling. But still, that connection is, I guess, absent from their minds. How do you explain that? That's a really good question. I, I think that it's kind of similar to hunting. You know, if you talk to hunters and fishermen, they'll talk about the connection that they feel to the animals and the connection that they feel to nature. And I think that it's kind of falling into that trap that we do a lot, which is focusing on our human-based experiences. And like, yes, you can feel very connected to nature by interacting with a hurt animal, but you can also feel very connected to nature by observing that animal from a distance and watching them live their lives and seeing the majesty and the beauty of them being left alone and free in their, in their lives and their world. And so I think that you know, a lot of the context of, of fishing is, is that same thing. People want to connect with nature. They want to connect with animals and um, are maybe not thinking of ways that they could do that that don't require the suffering of another individual. And I want to address some of the maybe prejudices or lies we tell ourselves about fish. Uh, a lot of those fishermen say, you know, they practice a kind of fishing where they pull out the fish, and then they put it back in the water. 
and they think of it as being compassionate and not harming the fish. Mm -hmm. What do you say about that? Um, I mean, at, at its most blunt level, I would ask them if they'd want someone to come into their home, dunk them underwater for two minutes, and then shove them back in and call that compassion. I, I don't think that there's a way to frame that as a compassionate act. Um, you know, compassion is not inflicting unnecessary harm on someone else. It's respecting someone else's autonomy in their life. And I think that if someone really wants to interact with fish and they're already in the position and have the privilege to be able to spend money to go buy fishing equipment, maybe they should spend that money on a camera. Maybe they should spend that money on a GoPro that they can stick underwater and watch the fish and see them in their environment. Maybe they should learn how to scuba dive and be able to interact with fish in a peaceful, nonviolent, and truly compassionate way. And so what do you think about the media around fish? I talked a lot about Finding Nemo, but there are so many documentaries out there um, which highlight the lives of uh, the lives of uh, fish. Is it useful, uh, or is there like a bad negative impact to that media, like Finding Nemo, which the whole plot of the story is about saving this fish? But then people have watched the movie and felt the need to go to a pet store and adopt uh, a clownfish. And, uh, you know, this was not planned, I think, by people who made the movie or thought about this, uh, its effects on, um, on, on the viewers. So what do you think about the whole, you know, media ecosystem around uh, fish? I think it it's it's a little hard to say in in kind of one answer because there's so many different types of media, right? Like I think a lot of the documentaries are generally beneficial. Um, I think it's very sad to see in many documentaries that our impacts on fish and their environments are prioritized as an environmental issue. Um, I would never in a million years say that the environment and our impact on the environment isn't huge. But I think that there's also room in that conversation to talk about our impacts on individuals and and the fish who live there. Um, but for a, a movie like Finding Nemo, I think it's really fascinating because, like you said, the movie is entirely based around this story of a fish who was like unwillingly separated from his family, who was pulled forcibly from his home. And I, I, I will say I love Finding Nemo. I love that movie. I'm a huge Pixar person. I love animated movies and I love Finding Nemo. And I, I think it's so, I guess, interesting and, and, and kind of typical that we watch a movie like Finding Nemo where, um, you know, the dentist very early on, he says, oh, I found this little guy struggling for life out in the reef. And all of us as the viewers were like, no, you didn't. You did not. But he was not struggling for life. He was doing great. He had his family. He had his friends. He was fine. And you pulled him out of his home and that's wrong. Um, and I think it's unfortunate that we can watch a movie like that and recognize that and then still feel the desire to go to the pet store and buy a fish who was also pulled out of their home away from their family and away from everything they've ever known so that we can keep them in an aquarium in our house. Um, you know, most saltwater fish that you could buy in a store today were wild caught. 
um, not necessarily in the way that Nemo was. It's it's more of like a an industrial capture kind of scale. It's not wouldn't typically be just an individual diver. It's more people do dive in and they'll catch the fish individually, but on a massive scale. Um, and you know, then freshwater fish are captive bred, but they go through their own whole horrible start to life of of transport and and difficult things. And I think that a movie like Finding Nemo gives us the opportunity to recognize that our treatment of these animals is wrong. Um, and I think it's unfortunate that many of us watch it and take away the kind of human-focused me- message of, oh, but isn't it fun to have a fish in an aquarium? Mm-hmm. I-, I want to talk about the pet stores. But first, let's go back to what you said about um, climate change, because that is also something I have noticed, how the 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 highlight is, you know, w- we often hear environmental conservation or mm-hmm. conservation of fish population. And it is always said with, like, the idea that we want to continue fishing those populations, mm-hmm. um, but in a responsible way and in a sustainable way. There are a lot of those buzzwords uh, used in order to justify human uh, exploitation of animals. And never, I never heard anyone um, in those documentaries or um, public commentators talk about the suffering it causes on the fish population. And it's such a, when you think about the scale, the number of those uh, fish populations just getting annihilated by human uh, exploitation, it's crazy. It's maddening. Um, So can you comment on that? Yeah, it, it is maddening. That's a good, a good way to describe it. I think that um, one of one of the areas that the kind of animal rights and, and vegan movement is really lacking is in our conversations around fish. Um, you know, we all know the numbers around farmed animals of, you know, terrestrial farmed animals, that billions are killed every year. And what we don't talk about in that context is that there are trillions of fish killed every year. I mean, just completely incomprehensible numbers of fish who are killed and um, I think it's it's overwhelming and it is hard to take those trillions and turn it into an individual conversation, um, especially when, you know, as we talked about earlier, people already struggle to connect to fish. Um, so I think, you know, a lot of t- a lot of times it's maybe a little bit easier to get you know, non-vegans and people who are outside of the animal rights world to connect to the environmental issues. Um, because, you know, you you say things like, oh, we're going to have fishless, fishless oceans by 2048. And people go, wow, that sounds terrifying because what are we going to eat? And, you know, we talk about sustainable fishing and all these things, like you said. And I think a lot of those are just, frankly, buzzwords and, and things like you said to kind of help us feel better about the atrocity that is is ongoing in our treatment of of fish and um, the environment as a result. You know, there's there's not a kind way to fish, and there is not a compassionate way to to do any kind of the farming that we do. Um, and so, I think, 
you know, it, it maybe because we struggle to connect to fish, it's a little bit easier to pull in that environmental conversation and get people to connect on that level. But I think that really is an area that we're, we're kind of failing um, the fish specifically that we, we need to talk about them more. Yes. And we often, everyone, I think, who is listening to this podcast has uh, has seen uh, pictures of birds struggling with a piece of plastic uh, mm -hmm. uh, around their neck, neck or um, uh, plastic that they tried to eat and it's stuck. Um, but I think about it as if the birds are marine birds, you know, who fish for uh, surviving um, are struggling with human presence to this extent. What is happening under the sea with mm -hmm. smaller fish and smaller aquatic life? Yeah, it's it's hidden, and but it doesn't make it less valid of a cause or um, the pain is still there it's just hidden that's the thing yeah yeah absolutely i mean we've all seen like you said we've all seen the videos like the birds or you know the sharks or the seals or even the fish who are caught even like in nets underwater and divers cutting them free and things and and if you look at some of the reactions to those videos it's always people saying wow it's so amazing that you rescued that shark or whatever And there's no acknowledgement of the fact that that shark needed to be rescued because we eat fish and they were trapped in fishing equipment because most of the plastic in the ocean is discarded fishing equipment. And so if we weren't fishing, the amount of plastic that we need to remove from the ocean and the just environmental catastrophe that is happening because of that would be such a smaller scale. It would still be a problem, of course, um, but fishing is just the is such a disaster for that. I am so happy to hear you say that because <laughs> I hear friends and people debating um, plastic straws and their impact on the ocean. Meanwhile, mm -hmm. it's fishing that is causing all of that plastic exactly. in the water. Yeah. Yeah, I think I've seen it before. There is, I don't know, something I've seen online that it basically said, like, you'll you'll stop using plastic straws to save fish, but you won't stop eating fish to save fish. And I think that's, you know, there's no, there's no better summary of it than that, um, because that really is the leading cause. Truly. And what about the, the mercury? Um, I have mentioned a few times in this podcast how Uh, in a Mediterranean diet, if you eat fish, it's considered healthy, um, but there is the mercury inside the fish, um, so it's bad for your health. But it's also bad for the health of the fish, for a starter, I mean. Um, and I guess they're suffering from all of those uh, chemicals we dump in the water. Um, do we have any data or anything about how fish is suffering from uh, aquatic life in general is suffering from, I don't know, like chemical burns or things like that. Mm -hmm. um, I would assume that there must be, I honestly mm. don't know. Um, I, I assume that there is, I, I think though that like something we maybe don't take into account a lot when we think about fish and pollution and, and kind of water <laughs> Uh, is the is the way that fish interact with their environment. You know, we all have had 
the experience of um, breathing in smoke and how unpleasant that is. Um, you know, I have lived in an area affected by wildfires for a long time, and the smoke from the wildfires is is very intense sometimes. Or if you don't live near that area, you're you're lucky, and but maybe you've experienced trying to start a campfire and getting the face full of smoke and just your eyes burning and your nose burning and your lungs burning. Um, for a fish, if they're living in water that's polluted, it's not just their eyes and their their gills because their entire body is surrounded by it in a way that we just kind of don't experience as much with air. Um, you know, we can stick our hand in smoke and we're not going to, as far as I know, we're not going to really feel like a, a smoke burn. Um, but for fish, if they're living, you know, I see most frequently with rescued fish, things like ammonia burns. Um, you'll see this too in, in intensively farmed animals like chickens will have ammonia burns and things on their bodies because of living in an area of such concentrated pollution. Um, and so, you know, when fish are living in that, it's it's burning their skin, it's getting, you know, pulled into their bodies and into their lungs and things. And, um, you know, we know that mercury is an issue. We know that microplastics are an issue. Um, there's all kinds of things that we have put into the ocean that fish are now having to take into their bodies and they don't have an escape from it. Um, and so then, of course, when we eat the fish, we're taking in anything that they have inside of their bodies, too. It's a great analogy, um, like a wildfire. Yeah, I, I love that analogy. Um, so I want to get back to the pet stores because I feel like this is what the, the, the interaction people have with live fish is through a pet store, um, usually. Um, mm -hmm. That's the most common interaction they have. Um, and pet stores are kind of weird uh, in a way because here you are in your hometown in the middle of North America and there's this place um, which has in captivity some creatures from all over the world including fish from um, oceans um, you know at kilometers away you know mm -hmm. worlds away from where you are um, so where do they find the fish? How does, is the fish brought to the pet store? And why is it allowed? How is this legal? <laughs> All good questions. Um, so for, for where the fish come from, it, it's really going to vary. Um, and I think to, to kind of get into that, we should back up just half a step and, and say, you know, that fish are the most numerous pet animal. Um, and so for all the dogs and the cats that we see through our days, you know, interacting with people that they can take their dog out with them, or you see a cat outside or something like that, there are so many more fish. Um, and they're all kept in these little tanks, either in our homes or, or in pet stores. And so I think it's great that you're asking this because a lot of people don't think of like, well, how did they even get here? I mean, a dog, you know, we can all understand stray dogs, but you don't encounter like a stray fish that you <laughs> take home and, and have as like, oh, I found this stray fish and now they're my friend. That doesn't happen. Um, it should because people dump fish, but that's a whole other problem. Um, but the fish from the pet stores, it, it really comes down to um, either wild capture or captive bred. So the majority of saltwater fish, about 90% of saltwater fish are um, wild caught, which means that 
they're they're captured from places like Hawaii, um, the Philippines, um, you know, all the areas that have beautiful saltwater reefs, there's probably some level of of captive fishing going on. A lot of it is in kind of the Southeast Asia area, from my understanding. It's been a minute since I looked at all these statistics. But um, so these fish are wild caught. Um, there's a few different methods. A semi-common one, or a very common one actually, is called cyanide fishing. Um, that's technically illegal in most places, but um, there are ways you can test to see if a fish was captured using cyanide fishing. And, and um, you know, there have been studies that have shown that a substantial number of the fish in the aquarium trade um, were captured using cyanide fishing. So what this means is that a diver goes into a reef um, with usually like basically a squeeze bottle of a cyanide poison that they'll use to spray onto the fish in the reef. It'll stun the fish, basically kind of paralyze them, and then they'll collect all the fish. As you can imagine, a massive number of these fish die um, as a result of cyanide toxicity. It's incredibly toxic, it's incredibly dangerous for the fish and for the diver, and it's hugely destructive to the reef. Um, you know, coral is a living organism that is also impacted by cyanide toxicity, and the coral can't swim away. Um, and so it's hugely destructive to the reefs, it's hugely destructive to the fish, um, and I think it's it's something like 90% of captured saltwater fish will die within their first year. Um, a huge amount of that is because of the stress of capture and transport. Um, so most saltwater fish come from those kinds of scenarios. There is a smaller portion. I think, you know, there's been some success with breeding like clownfish in particular in captivity um, to kind of reduce that, but that comes with its own problems. Um, then the flip side of that is that most freshwater fish are bred in captivity. Um, so this is like your goldfish, your bettas, your tetras, your corridoras, just the whole, you know, most of the fish that you see in the pet store will have been captive bred. Um, and in those cases, it's um, essentially factory farming. Um, it's very reminiscent of what people, you know, call puppy mills. Um, and if anything, it's worse because there's no legal regulation. There's no protection for fish. Um, a lot of these fish are bred in um, tropical areas like Thailand and then would be imported to um, other countries. The United States is the largest importer of fish. Um, we have the largest number of pet fish. Um, and, you know, there are some breeding facilities here. Like I believe a lot of goldfish are bred somewhere in the south. Um, so it really just kind of depends on the species. Um, but for captive breeding, it's it's very similar. You get a lot of loss, call it loss, as if that's, you know, like a, a thing to write off um, in transport or at the facilities themselves, and then, of course, more at the stores. Um, and so it's really just this kind of mass production of fish for, for sale in pet stores. Um, and the you know, as with any kind of mass production of anything, there's these losses that are accepted on some level. But in this case, it's not that, oh, you had some amount of scrap for your manufacturing process. It's that some number of individuals died because of this process and because of the drive for profits. Um, yeah, I think, I'm sorry, you had another question and I kind of forgot <laughs> what it was. Uh, I, I, I don't remember. I was 
Yeah, I think I asked about pet stores and um, how is it, it? It is weird to have those strange species in the middle of North America. And it's how so weird. Yeah, <laughs> it's it's so weird. I I think um, another thing that people don't really recognize with fish is that there's over thirty three thousand known species of fish, um, and so that's more than sixty percent of the known vertebrate species on Earth. Wow. Um, it's a massive number of species. And of course, not nearly that many number, thank goodness, are kept in captivity or sold as pets. Um, but, you know, if you go into a pet store, you'll see hamsters, rats, mice, a few species of birds and things like that. And then you might see two or three dozen different species of fish. And every one of those species is de is just as different from each other as, as a parrot is to a chicken. Um, they all have different needs. They have different um, kind of social structures that they'll build. They have different ways that they interact with each other. Um, and pet stores will not make that clear to people. I, I never thought about it this way, but, but you're right. It's, uh, it's incredible. Okay, I, I have a weird follow-up question. Why have we selected those uh, species of fish like uh, goldfish or uh, betta, um, instead of local uh, fish that we can find mm -hmm. in lakes and rivers of the U.S. or North America or Europe. Um, that's a that's a very good question. I don't like I, I've never read anything about it. My guess would be um, because of the appearance and the breeding of some of these fish. So. Um, you know, like the betta fish that you see, every single betta you see in a store will have been bred in captivity because they look nothing like their wild ancestors. Um, bettas in particular were actually domesticated for fighting um, because they're a particularly aggressive species of fish. Um, and so, you know, now they've been selectively bred for generations upon generations to have those fabulous, brightly colored, gorgeous fins that everybody loves, um, but that can hinder their their quality of life. Um, and, and so I think that's a big part of it is the, um, the appearance of them, you know, compared to if you go to like a, I don't know, a local pond or something that has native tiny minnows in it, those little tiny minnows might be a little bit less pretty. Um, but honestly, I think that part of it is just that those are the species that have always been kind of domesticated and bought and sold. Um, and, I, I don't fully know the history. It's something I should definitely read up on because now I'm really curious about it. I guess I've never thought about it a whole lot because um, that is a really good question. Like, why why do I have a room full of rescued tropical fish in Nevada? Like, there is no reason for any of those fish to be here. Um, you know, none of the fish who live in our house would survive for more than a minute or two in our ecosystems here. And all of the fish who live in our ponds and things would just wreak havoc on the ecosystem because they're also non-native and they could survive and do well in the cold water, but they're not a native species and they would unintentionally destroy the ecosystem. Um, and so, yeah, it's it's very bizarre. <laughs> well, that, um, that's the thing. I hope someone wrote about it, but it might be the case that nobody wrote about this issue because... It's not an interest of most people, most animal rights yeah. activists. So what about uh, the general public? Um, mm -hmm. you, you mentioned how beta was uh, bred for fighting. 
Mm-hmm. Well, what is fish fighting? <laughs> <laughs> um, it's, I would say, you know, kind of like any other animal fighting for show, um, for entertainment. Um, you know, my understanding is basically it would just be putting two generally male bettas into the same tank and watching them attack each other. Um, I think it's the same thing that people are drawn to with things like cockfighting and dogfighting of just an awful display um, that I I don't understand why people are drawn to it. Um, you know, I, I think it's not, I wouldn't say it's particularly common, but I, I don't know a whole lot about kind of the state of fish fighting right now. Um, my only experience with anything even slightly close to it, which is unfortunately very common is people who are completely uneducated they go to a pet store they buy two bettas and they think they can live together Hmm. um and then they just beat each other up really bad um you know and it's not the fish doing anything wrong it's them acting according to their nature um but yeah it's um it's it's really really sad we've had a few uh bettas who have have been kept with others and they are always just, you know, their fins are shredded, they're so stressed, they're, they might have wounds on their bodies and things, and it's just, it's awful. And I also want to talk about goldfish, because it's the most popular species of um, mm-hmm. fish that is uh, kept in captivity. First of all, is it true that goldfish has no memory? No, <laughs> not at all. Because, um, yeah, that's the thing it's, they are known it's such for. a common myth mm. yeah yeah people will say the three second memory um goldfish can remember things for years um they form incredibly strong family bonds and relationships um they remember individuals they remember um you know their favorite places just like other species of fish they'll remember if they've experienced pain um yeah they're incredibly intelligent um they're I think as far as like myths and general perceptions go, if you're looking at pet species, goldfish have done, you know, have received by far the worst disservice from, from humans because there's all these myths about them that they have a three second memory, that they'll only live for a few months, that they're stupid, that they're boring, that they're any of these things, that they grow to the size of the tank they're kept in. I mean, I you could, I could just ramble off all these myths. Um, And it's all wrong and it's heartbreaking because goldfish, um, they're personally my favorite species of fish. Um, They're hilarious and um, they are just incredible. Like I said, they they form these really, really, really strong um, family and kind of friendship bonds um, to the point that... um, our organization now we we basically have a policy that we will not keep a single pair of goldfish um, outside of very extenuating circumstances because when one inevitably passes before the other the loss is just way too much for the remaining fish um we had a pair lucas and wednesday lucas we still have um wednesday had neurological um and other like physical health issues from the treatment she'd received before us and her original partner Pugsley passed away. Um, and Lucas had just arrived. We finished out his quarantine and he moved in with Lucas to be, or with Wednesday to be a companion to her. 
Um, and Wednesday passed away about a year ago. And I genuinely thought Lucas was going to die too. It was the most heartbreaking thing I've ever seen. He was laying at the bottom of the tank. He would not eat. He was just lethargic and completely uninterested in anything for well over a week. Um, and I was freaking out because I'd never seen something like that so intense before. And I was like, oh my gosh, like Wednesday passed away of expected things. And I had suddenly, I was suddenly worried, like, is Lucas so sick or something? Did something happen? And our vet came out and she said, no, he's, he's doing fine. It was the loss of his companion. Um, and so, you know, that I think is something that people don't recognize with fish and with goldfish, but all fish really is the bonds and the, the relationships that they can make. Um, so Lucas now lives with all of our other fancy goldfish and they have, you know, their whole little family there together and they have a solid group. And that's kind of always our goal is, is because they're just so social and they form those bonds. It's, it's so important to keep them together. What you just described, I never heard before. I've heard about all the, the false ideas, um, that we propagate on goldfish And I'm just astonished by the disparity between that public image of goldfish and the reality of who they are. I always have to. It's, um, it's like simultaneously, you know, very frustrating and heartbreaking because I see those public perceptions all the time. Um, and then also a privilege to get to witness those relationships and the family bonds that they have. Um, you know, watching Wednesday and Lucas's relationship and seeing the comfort that he provided to her at the end of her life is just like something that I will always um, cherish. Because, you know, even, even before she passed, she was slowing down. She wasn't doing well. And in her last week, she wasn't really eating. And she was kind of hanging out at the bottom of the tank. Um, and Lucas wouldn't leave her side. And so seeing them in there together, knowing Wednesday's background and knowing that she was at the end of her life and watching the comfort that he gave to her was just incredible to see. Um, and I think it's tragic that most people don't know that that exists or or don't see it um with fish and and with all animals and the relationships that they form i use the term anthropomorphize to describe a bit of how the characters in finding nemo are built but i have kind of a complicated um understanding of that word because we often use it to mean Oh, those feelings of grief and of complicated, complex emotions that we display as humans, they are our feelings. And the rest of the animal kingdom don't share those feelings with us. They, they're not capable of that emotional depth. And we use, uh, oh, you're anthropomorphizing uh, animals in a way of saying um, this is the domain of humans. These emotions, like the grief um, you, you mentioned, um, is the domain that it's proper to humans and not to animals. Um, yeah, so w when you tell stories like, like these, I think it's, it destroys that view 
uh, that belief, um, which is so um, well rooted in in our minds. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that's a really, really good way to describe it. And I've I haven't really thought of it from that perspective before. But you're you're completely right. We we use this explanation of oh, you're anthropomorphizing to just dismiss the experiences of animals and say that that is a uniquely human experience when it's not. And um, I think that's part of what lets us as a species treat other animals the way that we do, um, and why these myths around fish in particular, but around all animals are still so pervasive. Um, I, because I think that if if instead of saying that, oh, the grief that Nemo's father experienced is just anthropomorphization, and is that a word? Yes, <laughs> and, I think so, yes. Um, okay. Uh, if, if instead of dismissing it that way, we actually had to sit with um, the experiences like what I saw with Wednesday and Lucas and say, no, this is real grief and this is loss and this is an experience that is shared across species. I think it would make it much harder for humans to treat other animals the way that we do. And, you know, I, I would dare to go as far as to say that sometimes when we witness those behaviors and experiences, we can learn from them. What's so shocking about learning from animals, learning love, learning uh, how to go through grief or being inspired by uh, other animals. But for the general public, it's it's like blasphemy. Don't say Mm it. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, it's that's such a good point. Like it was so powerful for me to witness Lucas staying by Wednesday at the end of her life. And um. You know, I've I've always believed that that's important. You know, if if your if your companion or a family member or someone is is at the end of their life, I think it's so critical that we be there with them and go through that process and that experience with them. Um, and I think that we often want to run from a lot of those feelings and those experiences. And I think that we really can learn a lot from animals and the relationships that they have with each other and the respect that they show to each other in those situations. I want to quickly go back to the pet store story. Mm-hmm. Um, I truly want to make a good job at covering that industry. Um, so they are captured or bred in yes. foreign countries and then brought to the US or to Europe or wh- wherever the demand is. Mm-hmm. How are they brought to another continent? Um, what are the means of transportation and what is it like from their point of view? Um, so, if, you know, of course I am in the U.S., so I, I have the most experience with that. I know that there are some countries that actually do have some protections in place for fish. The United States is not one of them. Um, so, again, it's it will vary by species how transport happens. So, um, fish like... Um, Goldfish and the other community species who can live in groups are often transported in just plastic bags, um, usually in some kind of like styrofoam cooler. Um, they'll just come in this big cooler and they're in a bag and there's, um, I don't know, the bag's maybe a third to half full with water and the rest is air. Um, and then they are acclimated to the pet store tanks from those bags. Um, bettas are unique because they have to be separated and so they are rather than a single large bag they're transported in tons of tiny individual bags which will mean that you'll have 
a fish in like it it it's such a small amount of water i mean maybe three to four tablespoons of water i I don't know how many milliliters that is i'm sorry um like a very small amount of water like if you've seen the cups that they're in on pet store shelves they're transported in less water than that um and um you know it it is incredibly stressful for any of these fish transport is really really hard on fish um and it's really hard on any animals, but I think for fish in particular, because their entire environment is going to be sloshing around and splashing. Um, for a fish kept in a bag with other fish, they're banging into each other. Um, there might be stress-based aggression um, because, of course, the space is far too small. The water quality is getting steadily worse. They may be getting low on oxygen, depending on how long they've been in the bag. Um, it's just very, very, very stressful. Um, fish in the bag will die and now they're there and their bodies you know it's it's just terrible it's so stressful for fish um to be transported in that way um and you know whether a fish is moving two miles down the road or coming from thailand to nevada um transport is always stressful there are ways to minimize the stress um and my understanding, I could, you know, I, I'm not positive, but my understanding is that some companies will put certain kind of chemicals into the water to try to help, like, keep the fish a bit calmer and things like that. Um, but it's it's just generally horrendously stressful. Um, and, yeah, it's, it's awful. Tons of fish will die in transport. Um, and it's, it's really, really heartbreaking. Well, this whole industry and economic activity uh, is awful the way you describe it, and the details are just uh, gut-wrenching. Mm-hmm. Um, but it is not a tragic situation. We can do something about it. We can change things for the better. And you have made that choice by opening uh, Friends of Philip. So... Let me start by asking you, who is Philip? <laughs> um, so Philip was our um, first rescue. Um, he did pass away just this year, um, but he had been with us for almost four years, um, which a, a typical better lifespan, it varies dramatically, but two to five-ish years. Some have been known to live up to eight. A lot live for less than a year you know it really kind of varies um so he was he was quite elderly uh geriatric is what our vet always called him <laughs> um so philip was our first rescue he was a betta um and it was basically the first of what has become a very um often repeated story for us where um i saw him on a pet store shelf. It was the classic situation of being in one of those little cups of water. Um, He looked just terrible. Um, You know, I was pretty new to fish at the time, but even having not seen very many sick fish, it was so apparent that he was in horrible shape. Um, I look back at the photos of him now and I'm honestly surprised that he survived. Um, But his fins were rotted away. He was incredibly thin. He was Um, very, very pale, just, you know, to almost anyone looking at him, it should have been apparent that he was going to die if he stayed there. Um, 
So I asked the manager at the pet store if I could adopt him. Um, and they said, yes. So they let me take him home for free. Um, and so I had a fish, but I didn't have any of the equipment for the fish, which is not the thing I would recommend doing. Um, what I did have was a very thorough understanding of the nitrogen cycle and a process called the fission cycle and of all of the things that I needed to keep a betta healthy and safe. Um, and so with that, I just needed the tank. So I ran to another store. I got the tank. I got all the equipment and kind of got him home and situated and then panicked about it for several weeks um, while I was doing the cycle process and going through all of the, these things for the first time. Um, but he recovered and he did very, very well for a really long time. Um, and seeing that process and facilitating that process is what kind of motivated me to keep doing it um, and to get more involved in, in fish rescue and advocacy. Let me say that I think it's beautiful how you had that instinct, that instant compassion for Philip and decided to adopt him in a spur-of-the-moment uh, situation because we often have this instinct for doing good, for giving, for being compassionate, but then we stop ourselves and we don't uh, you know, express our inspiration to do good. So I, I'm so happy to hear that this was like a, a true moment of instinct and inspiration that that you had uh uh for him so okay you adopt philip um he's in your home how do you go from there to let's adopt more fish and let's create an animal sanctuary <laughs> um that's a good question i think uh you know i I don't know. I'd, I'd been vegan for a little bit. I'd been volunteering at a really amazing farmed animal sanctuary um, for a bit by that point too. Um, and I think there was just always that part of me that was like, well, of, of course I'm going to eventually be rescuing animals. Like that's the only natural progression for my life. Um, and so I think that was a, a decent part of it. And um, really it was that I was not in a position where I thought that I had the resources or really like the space to be able to rescue terrestrial farmed animals. Um, and looking back on that, I'm kind of sad that that's the reason that fish became the focus um, because I, I wish that I had just known that fish needed so much more help, you know, and, and I wish I had just known that, but I didn't. Um, but it was really bringing Philip home and connecting with him and starting to learn more and more about um, our treatment of fish and our interactions with fish that kind of drove me towards like aquatic animals and, and fish specifically. Because um, I think to that point, I had, you know, been a I would say a pretty typical vegan that I cared so strongly about terrestrial animals and I of course didn't eat fish and I thought fishing was terrible and I I knew on the very broad level um how bad some of these things were but I think just like many of us I'd never had that moment of understanding and connection with a fish and recognizing 
you know, just how incredible they are. Um, and so getting that connection with Philip really facilitated that. And it sort of became, you know, it was just this moment of like, wow, this is something that I could actually do is that I have the space, I have the resources, I have the time. Um, I was very successful with our first rescue. Um, and I thought I could do it again. So, um, you know, a, a couple months, I, I want to say like I brought Philip home in July and I think in October or November, um, our next two rescues came home and that was Frankie and Ozai who were two bettas that had been kept together in a really just awful situation. Um, and I got to see them recover and them flourish and do very, very well. Um, and it, you know, just kind of continued to build steadily from there. Um, I never wanted to let things get crazy of suddenly going from zero tanks to 50 overnight and getting in over my head or something. But, um, you know, a, a bit over a year after Philip came home, I um, decided to actually make it into an organization. Um, and um, I was bouncing around of, should it be like a pet fish rescue? Should it be a small animal rescue? What kind of organization should this really be? And um, ultimately settled on a fish sanctuary um, because I think that farmed animal sanctuaries are so valuable and I can see what they do to let people connect to farmed animals. Um, and I, and I know that fish need that too. How many residents are right now in, uh, in your care? Um, right around a hundred. Wow. Yeah. Of, uh, just over 25 species. Wow. Um, and, and yeah. <laughs> where did they come from? Um, so it, it varies a bit. Um, uh, most of our bettas came from pet stores in the same way that Philip did. Um, we of course would never buy a fish, but, um, we do take in pet store surrenders. So, um, most of our bettas came from that situation. Um, all of our, trying to think, all of our, um, community species. So like the, the tetras, the danios, the Corridoras, the you know the cute little tropical dudes, um, those were all um, caregiver surrenders, um, and then our goldfish were um, also caregiver surrenders. Oh, there's a train driving past my house. I hope you can't hear it. Oh, it's okay. I mean, it okay. adds to the ambiance. <laughs> just <laughs> okay. Um, yeah, I can go on mute. It's just there's an intersection like right over there. Um. um Sorry, but uh, yeah, so the, the goldfish and the cold water species were also um, caregiver surrenders. Um, and then we have two geckos who were caregiver surrenders, and we have three hens who were as well, um, but of course, mostly fish. And what does it take to care for all of them? Because they, okay, first of all, how many tanks do you have uh, for <laughs> all of those uh, fishes? It's a little embarrassing because I never know off the top of my head and I always have to count even though it's always the same number. Um, but, well, we actually, it has changed recently. We, we've said goodbye to some of our older beta residents um, recently. So I've um, kind of decreased the number of small tanks that we have. Um, but we currently have, oh dear, sorry, 20 mm -hmm. tanks. Um and that includes two, I call them like stock tank ponds. So, you know, like a, the big 
plastic kind of looking stock tanks that are often used for farmed animals to just drink water out of. We have two of those um, in our garage for goldfish and cold water species. Then the other tanks are your kind of classic glass aquarium um, that have our, our tropical species in them. Um, we have one additional stock tank outside, and then we just finished our larger in-ground pond. Um, so I don't think that quite counts as a tank, though. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's amazing, a pond. But there's a lot. <laughs> How big yeah. is it? How big is the pond? Um, it is 3,300 gallons. Wow. Um, so it's about six feet. It's just over six feet deep at its deepest point. Um, and... Um, Yeah, it's it's pretty sizable. It was a very big hole. And how many hours of work does it represent to care for all of them? It really varies. Um, so each day I spend, it's really very quick. Um, that's the fun thing with, with fish and aquariums is that um, there's not the kind of, you know, daily poop scooping that you do, for like we do for like the chickens. Um, so each day it's, probably 10 minutes in the morning, 10 minutes at night to feed everybody and check on everyone and make sure they're doing okay. Um, and then when they need water changes, it'll be several days of, <laughs> you know, maybe I'll spend an evening doing six or eight water changes. Um, and I'll do that a few nights a week. Um, but it, it does depend a bit on, you know, when the tanks need changes and how everyone's doing and all of that kind of stuff. And the logistics of it, I mean, you had to have taken the time to think about it um, because, and I don't think there is uh, a manual out there that uh, you can read from to uh, to tell you how to care about all of them. <laughs> and unfortunately, there's almost too many manuals and most of them are not very good. Well, um, so there's... That's that's one of the challenges is that there isn't, in for most cases, a, a single place that you can go and really learn about how to care properly for fish. Um, that that is changing. Our um, our aquatic vet has an amazing website with all kinds of resources on it. Um, more and more um, sites like have you have you heard of the Open Sanctuary Project? Yes. Um, and the Micro Sanctuary Resource Center. Uh -huh. um, they're both doing more and more resources on fish, which is amazing, um, and and things like that. So resources are becoming available, but a lot of like what I know is has just been gathered through hours upon hours of like searching through things on the internet and trying to think really critically. You know, because some sites will tell you that a goldfish does great in a 20 gallon tank, and that is not true. Um, so there, it's just a lot of kind of critical thinking and trying to figure out, okay, how much do I trust this source? And does this just make sense to me based on my experience with, with fish either similar to this species or this species in particular and that kind of thing? I'm so happy that you're doing this pioneering work, but at the same time, I'm thinking we have been uh, keeping goldfish in captivity for decades And it's only now in 2023 that we're gathering that kind of uh, data on on the topic. I thought that we were more uh, informed on how to care for them. I think we're we're informed in a lot of ways, um, but I, I think a lot of the information around fish keeping is um, honestly really similar to what you find with terrestrial animals, where 
it's information on how to keep them alive um, and healthy enough, but it's not really information on how to provide them with an environment where they can truly thrive. Um, I encounter this a lot with like our hens where we, we have a heater, of course, in our coop for our chickens because it gets incredibly cold here in the winter. But if you go on to any kind of quote unquote backyard chicken resource, they'll say, oh, chickens can handle the cold or this is a cold hardy breed. Um, and so I think a lot of the information around fish is very similar where it's, yeah, a, a goldfish can survive in a 20 gallon tank alone and they will never be happy that way. Um, but when our goal is to have something pretty to look at and have that thing as we see it survive, um, you know, it's, it's not too much of a concern to the people putting together that information, whether the fish is actually happy. Mm, I guess that's where the vegan factor plays a role, an important mm -hmm. role. That's why it's important for animal rights organizations to be led by vegans, and not just uh, your random person who is not truly committed to uh, the animal rights cause. Yeah, I, I agree. And I, I think, um, you know, you encounter that in the, the fish keeping world. People call it the hobby, which I hate, but you encounter that a lot in, in that community where um, there are plenty of people who care very strongly about their fish being healthy and happy. Um, But those are, are some of the same people who will turn around and be getting rid of their fish because they want to go in a di different direction with their tank or something like that. Um, and, you know, if we, if we truly care about these animals and want them to thrive and survive and, and be happy, um, their, their well-being has to be the priority. It can't be what we want and what we think is a good look or what we think makes sense for them. It has to truly be from the perspective of, okay, is this best for the individuals? How do you provide healthcare to your uh, uh, sanctuary's residents? That's a great question. Um, unfortunately, in, in the fish world, um, most people think that vet care is just not a thing. Um, which is not at all the case. If you go to most pet, most fish stores in the United States, um, they'll be selling all kinds of different medications and antibiotics and things. I don't know what it's like in other countries, but I know in the United States, these are not regulated medications and they're sold. Um, you know, you can get random antibiotics that aren't, aren't regulated or, or tracked or things like that, um, that you then go home and are exposing yourself to and putting in your tank to treat something that may or may not actually need that medication. Um, there's all kinds of misinformation online about fish healthcare and treatment. Um, and most people think that that's the only option, but, um, we use an incredible aquatic veterinarian, um, Dr. Jesse Sanders at Aquatic Veterinary Services. She has a mobile practice that covers California and Nevada, which is incredible. Um, but there are aquatic vets all over the place. They're not as common, of course, as, as your typical like dog and cat vet, but they do exist um, and you, you can find them. Um, And so for our residents, I have a small number of things that I will do personally. Um, like if a new fish is coming home and needs some additional support, I might use some aquarium salt or things like that. Um, but for any kind of true treatment, it's all done by our veterinarian. So we only use medications that have been prescribed. We only treat based on her 
prescriptions and recommendations. Um, you know, we've had a number of fish deal with things like bacterial infections that she can diagnose and then provide good regulated um, prescribed medications for. And um, that's that's just huge. You know, fish fish vet care looks just like terrestrial animal care. Um, our, our residents have received x-rays, they've gotten ultrasounds, they've gotten injections of antibiotics, um, they've had antibiotics added to the water, um, they've had, you know, all kinds of treatment, um, just like a terrestrial animal can receive. So um, I think that that's really, really valuable. Um, and something that maybe people don't know about is, is that there are aquatic vets, and they're amazing, and they are so critical to um, providing responsible, compassionate care to fish. And also, I want to highlight how if you visit your Instagram account, there are some residents that you post about who are gravely, have been gravely mutilated or um, went through hell. And you're keeping them alive, which is quite touching. Um, and I guess uh, your your vet is playing a key role in, in that process. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, we have a number of disabled residents, like you said. Um, we have fish who've come in with injuries and things. Um, and yeah, we consult with our veterinarian on things like that in the same way that we would for any other species. Um, it's incredibly, incredibly important to me to prioritize quality of life and, you know, an animal's ability to live a happy, healthy life um, over anything else. So our disabled residents, um, you know, will put some accommodations into their tanks, um, things that our vet have re has recommended, things that I've learned online, things that we've just learned kind of help them through um, observation. Um, and yeah, our, our relationship with our vet is so integral to all of that, um, you know, being able to provide the care for our disabled residents and for our, our fully abled residents. Um, because without, without her, you know, we, we would be kind of in the dark on a lot of this stuff and knowing if we're doing the right thing. So it's, it's so, so important to have that relationship. So for the listeners who are inspired by what you're doing and who understand now, uh, how, important your work is and how you're uh, working hard to to care for them how can they support your mission and your sanctuary um so there there are a few ways um we're on instagram and on facebook um both are friends of philip fish sanctuary it's a little long um so we're on there you can you know follow us and follow along with the residents and things um and uh, we do have through the social media, we have links to, to different ways to support us um, through, you know, donations and whatnot. Um, honestly, though, the, the best way to support what we're trying to do is to just talk about fish more um, and to advocate for them when you can. Um, I think a lot of us encounter fish as, you know, these living decorations in people's homes and, and it can be an uncomfortable conversation to say like, hey, I see you have a fish in a bowl. Have you considered getting them a tank, you know, and, and things like that. Um, and then of course, to just not buy them and to not support the industries that are harming them. That is always going to be the best and easiest way um, to support and advocate for fish. Well, that was my next question. For the vegans who are listening to this podcast, 
What is your message to motivate them to take action for sea life, for the fish population, for uh, against what is happening in pet stores and through the fishing industry? That's a very good question. Um, I think the main thing I, I would want to say is to not underestimate your own power and, and influence in these situations. Um, you know, if, if you're in the position and prepared to want to individually rescue a fish, that's amazing. But a lot of people can't do that um, or simply don't, you know, want to take, take that on. And that's fine. Um, I, I think that, you know, the worst thing we can do is nothing. Um, because if, if we're silent, then nothing is ever going to change. Um, so finding ways to advocate that align with, with you personally and the things that you are, you know, passionate about and motivated to do, whether that's, um, going to protests, whether it's sharing on social media, whether it's individual rescue, um, whether it's volunteering at a sanctuary or things like that, um, You know, I, I think that that can be really huge. And and I would say that if you're a vegan who's already involved in animal rights and animal advocacy, um, I, I would just say, please evaluate your messaging and make sure that you're including fish. It's so, so, so easy and so, so, so common for individual vegans and vegan organizations to just not include fish at all. And I don't think it's ever done out of any malice. It's just out of that same perspective that we all kind of struggle sometimes to connect to aquatic life because we don't see them as much. And so, you know, if you're in the position to, I don't know, work with an organization and change their messaging to better include fish in aquatic life, that's huge. Um, and that's exactly what these animals need. And of course, people will find um, links to your Instagram and other uh, resources uh, in the description below. So, Gwendolyn, this was a pleasure. I think we covered most of uh, what I wanted to cover. Um, did you have anything more to add before we end this conversation? Um, yeah, I, I think the there's kind of one thing I always try to emphasize when I'm talking about fish and fish rescue in general, um, because I think a lot of very well-intentioned people will hear me talk about fish rescue and get motivated to do it themselves. And that's amazing. Um, and you know, my story of Philip is very cute and I rescued him in some ways on impulse, but I had an incredibly thorough understanding of what I needed to do to keep him safe and keep his aquarium healthy. And, um, you know, just Googling the nitrogen cycle and researching that and making sure you understand it is going to be one of the most important things you could ever do if you're interested in fish rescue. And going into fish rescue or bringing a fish home without a thorough understanding of the nitrogen cycle and how to keep them safe and how to take care of their aquarium is doing them a huge disservice. Um, regardless of intention. Um, and so I don't want to discourage anyone from rescuing fish or any animals if they're excited to, but it's it's so, so, so important to make sure that we're doing it responsibly. That's the key word here. We want responsible rescuers. Yes. Um, if not, you're just part of the problem, I guess. Exactly. 
amazing. Um, so again, this was such a pleasure uh, talking with you and such an inspiring and educative conversation. Thank you so much, Gwendolyn, for having accepted my invitation. Oh, of course. Thank you so much for having me. It's been a pleasure. Thank you, everyone, for listening. I kindly invite you to share this podcast with the vegans you know. Let's encourage more people to take action. Again, thank you so much for caring, and I will see you next Tuesday for a new episode.